Well, I wanted to show you that uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, one is just to invite you to pray for us. Tomorrow, I hope to tell you a little bit how, if you'd like to be part of a prayer team, to uh, Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up those who would go out. If you'd like to be part of a prayer team that supports uh, Linda and me and our school as we're trying to say, Lord, raise up capable, godly men and women to serve your church. I just think that's incredible. Jesus told us to pray for that. So if you'd be willing to join us, I'll give you a way to do that tomorrow. Also give you a little bit of uh, more information about the school and some of the programs. But today I mostly just wanted to ask you, will you, uh, will you enter into something that is very precious, I believe not just to my heart, but to the Lord's heart, his church? And as Spurgeon said, we need seed gardens for the church. And Heritage is seeking to be a seed garden where we're raising up men and women who will be unapologetically committed to the word of God and will live that out. And we just need uh, people like you who love the church, who love the Lord, to, to pray for it. And then uh, some of you even could help invest in it. As you know, it's an expensive thing to train people, and we try to keep our costs really low. One of the ways we do that is by having friends who help support the ministry of the school. And if you would have a heart for that, talk to me, and I'll just give you more information. Uh, I have a table back there has some books. You're, you can see those for a donation to the school. You can take a book. And if you're a pastor here, I do have a few more copies of a book that I want to give you that our faculty wrote. So that's, that's all I'll say today. I'll tell you a little bit more about some of the programs for students and graduate students. So we'll do that a little bit later on another day. Well, if you ask Christians, what has been one of the greatest sources of joy in your life? Just think of what you would say. But if you ask Christians all around, said, what has been one of the greatest sources of joy? On the short list of their answers would be this one. They would say, the friendships I've had. Friendships with other believers I've had. Those have been some of the greatest sources of joy in my life. Many, many Christians would put friendship with other Christians you know, near the top of their list. And then if you ask those same Christians, what's been the greatest sort of heartache in your life? Many of those same people would say, well, it's been the friction that I've had with some of the Christian friends that I've had. Right? It's it's caused me more pain. You see, broken relationships create broken hearts, and the closer the friendship, the deeper the pain. David knew that. Uh, David wrote in Psalm, 1, Psalm 41, he writes this, All my enemies whisper together against me, even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. See, David can handle the fact he had enemies whispering about him. He kind of expected that. But what slayed him was the fact that he had a close friend, someone he shared bread with, who lifted up his heel against him. See, friendships are one of our greatest sorts of joy, but friction in those friendships is one of the greatest sorts of sorrow. And the damage that it does continues to multiply. You see, when, when friendships get poisoned, people get polarized. Like people start knowing what's going around, and they take sides or they take cover, right? They, they run for the hills or they run to one side or the other. And suddenly, what was a friction just starting here starts to bleed out and affect more and more people. Suddenly, togetherness is replaced by tension and turmoil. 
Now, I tell you all this because our theme for this week has been living in the joy of the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. And I have found over the course of my life that one of the greatest joy killers of all is friction in relationships. Relationships in the home, marriage, children, and then relationships in the extended family, friction in relationships in church family, in ministry teams, and then you can keep going into community. That has been one of the greatest joy killers I've ever experienced, and I think I'm not alone in that. I think many of you would say, how do you rejoice in the Lord always when you've got a bleeding heart over a broken friendship, a broken relationship? And what makes it especially hard is even when there is tension in a relationship, life still goes on. You still show up at church, and there are the people that you're kind of not eye to eye with, and they're at church. Or you're still trying to function at home, and things are not good at home, but there's still kids that need to be fed and taken to school. There's still aging parents that need to be cared for. There's all these dynamics going on, but life still goes on. So the question is, how in the world do you rejoice in the Lord always in the midst of a life that contains some relationships that are strained or broken? What do you do with that? Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning because Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 4. Today I want to talk to you about a very earthy subject, and that is rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of the mess of life and ministry. Like, how do you do this? How do you rejoice in the Lord in the midst of life with all its messiness? How do you rejoice in the Lord in the midst of ministry that has messiness to it? We're a bunch of people, and we tend to mess things up a bit. So how do you continue to find joy in the Lord when everything is not perfect around you? I think Paul speaks to that issue to his friends in Philippi. And God, inspiring the word, has meant these words to help us, these words to correct us, these words to instruct us. So this morning, I want to talk to you about rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of life and ministry. And we're going to do that from Philippians chapter 4. So would you join me there? Would you open your Bibles? Join me in Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to look at this passage uh, through, a, through a lens that uh, for many, many years I never saw. And uh, I'm hoping that it will seem fresh to you. But I hope, hopefully also you'll see that there is a coherence. There is a logical flow to what we're going to see today that just makes it hang together and makes it helpful. Let me pray for us and then we'll look at it. Lord, even this morning, as I've said these words, probably many of us here this morning, our mind runs to specific people, uh, people we love, or at least we once loved, or we once felt loved by, but now we're not so sure, and sometimes we feel uh, helpless and hopeless to make it better. So we bring all of that to you, Lord. We ask that you would help us help our hearts to not harbor any bitterness or unforgiveness. But Lord, even after we've forgiven, what do we do when things still seem strained? Would you use your word today to speak to us and help us? Uh, disciple us, Lord. Sanctify us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 4 begins with the note of joy. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Chapter 3, Paul had said, rejoice in the Lord, and then he goes on and talks about it. He picks it up and says, after finishing that little bit of a discussion, he says, you Philippians, you are the ones I love and I long for you. And then he says, you are my joy. Paul found great joy in the friendships he had in Philippi. These people were dear to his heart. He had suffered in their city. He had planted their church. They were his joy and crown. He loved them. And so he begins to speak about him. And that theme of joy is going to be embedded in this early part of chapter 4. If you jump down to chapter 4, probably the most familiar verse in the little epistle is verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. That's been kind of the theme verse for this series on the journey towards joy. It's rejoice in the Lord always. Let me say it again. Rejoice. That's what Paul says. Now, for many, many years, I read verse 4 in isolation. I read it as if it was a standalone thought, fairly unrelated and disconnected from what came before it and what came after it. But as I began to look at this passage, it hit me, this command to find joy in the Lord always is embedded in a discussion. There's a contextual flow. And this morning, what I want to do is show you as we walk through these verses, while indeed verse 4 stands alone in one sense, you can take it, post it on your refrigerator, and under any situation, you can look at that and say, that is still true. God wants me to rejoice in the Lord always. But I have found this verse to have an especially a, a kind of a, a deeper significance as I've seen it in the flow of Paul's discussion of the messiness of life and ministry. I don't think it's an accident that Paul anchors this verse in the middle of a discussion of the messiness of life and ministry. So what I want to do is walk through verses 1 through 9 and show you seven commands that Paul gives to the, the Philippians. Seven commands, seven words of instruction. And they all relate, I think they all hover around this theme of how do you handle the messiness of life and ministry when things are going sideways, when relationships get strained. And I want to show you all seven things and how joy is the anchor, how it's in the middle of this discussion. So let me walk through. How do you stand firm in the middle of life and ministry when things get messy? How do you find joy in the Lord? Well, let's look at them one at a time. I'm going to give you seven. They come out of verses really starting in verse two now through verse nine. Here's the first thing that Paul's going to tell these believers and God says to us. In the middle of this mess of life, in the middle of all the challenges of ministry, if you're going to stand firm in the Lord, the first thing that you have to do when things start, especially when things start getting offside, the first thing you do, Paul says to these people is, listen, you find agreement in the Lord. First thing he tells them, here's what I want you to do, my, my, the people, I love you, I'm, I long for you, so here's what I need to tell you, find agreement with one another in the Lord, find agreement in the Lord, look at verse 2, you'll see it, I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord, Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
Right after Paul talks about you being my joy and my crown, he, he goes to a delicate issue. He, he, he speaks about two women who have become sideways with one another. This must have been public, for Paul writes it in a public letter. The other people in the church must have known that Euodia and Syntyche weren't kind of seeing eye to eye. So Paul pleads with them. Now, before we beat up on Euodia and Syntyche too much, we do need to recognize that Paul treats these women as both his friends and in some senses as his faithful co-laborers, right? Look what he says about them. I plead with Euodia and Syntyche, agree with you in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. These are not lightweight Christian women. These are the ones who rolled up their sleeves, got alongside of Paul. They were kind of those faithful, hardworking women, loved the Lord, loved Paul, loved serving, but somehow things have gotten crossed between them. So Paul writes to them, and in verse 2, he says to them, here's what I want you to do. Do do you see with that in verse 2? Agree with each other. Paul writes to them, these two women who don't agree with each other, and says, I want you to agree with each other. Now, you may hear that and go, that is a very unrealistic piece of advice. Like, they're not going to agree with each other. In fact, they're entrenched in their disagreement with each other. Telling them to agree with each other is going to be impossible. You could lock them in a room, they could talk about whatever the issue is, and they could go on for hours, and they probably still wouldn't agree. So, Paul, how can you call them to agree with each other? In fact, the, uh, the Greek word that's translated agree with one another shows up in chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, this morning, Adam read it for it. It's translated in chapter 2, verse 2, by the phrase, be like-minded. So Paul is saying, I want you, Euodia, I want you, Syntyche, to be like-minded, to agree with each other. Now, again, you may say, it's just not, not ain't going to happen. And I would agree with you that it's probably not going to happen, except for the last three little words that Paul adds to his command. Did you see that in verse, verse 2? What's the significant little three words, right? I agree, I, I plead with you to agree with each other, what? In the Lord. In, that, that changes the equation. Paul's not saying, I urge you to agree with each other on the issue. They're probably not going to agree on the issue. But he's saying, uh, there's something higher that you can find common ground with, and that is you can agree in the Lord. You can both agree that you want the Lord's will over your will. You can both agree that it's the Lord's name and his reputation that matters more than your name and your reputation. You can both agree that the Lord is the one we must please. You can agree on that. That's the common ground you can find. You know, when Christians go sideways, there is one thing we should be able to agree on. We should be able to agree in the Lord. We should be able to come back and say, you know, we see this thing differently, but we both see the Lord. And we both agree that the Lord is above me, he's above you. When Linda and I get sideways, the one thing we can always agree on is that the Lord is over me and the Lord is over her, and that our common ground comes as we go to the Lord. We agree in the Lord. And Paul asked them to find common ground in the Lord, but that's not just all. In the Lord, we not only find common ground, we find uncommon strength uncommon strength to do what we need to do to get past our disagreements. 
See that little phrase, in the Lord, there in verse 2, it also shows up in verse 1. Did you notice the, little, the same little phrase, in the Lord? Look at, look at back at verse 1. He says, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. In other words, in the Lord speaks not only of our place of agreement, but it also speaks of our provision. It's God's grace to us. We stand in the Lord. We're able to stand in the strength of the Lord. We're able to stand in the resources of the Lord. So I think what Paul is saying to you, Odia and Syntyche, is this. Look, I know you don't see eye to eye, but I want you to find common ground and uncommon strength in the Lord. And I would say the application is the same for all of us. Are you in a place right now where you got some things that have gone sideways with somebody? And you think, well, we're never going to see eye to eye on this thing. But can you see eye to eye on being in the Lord? Can you come back and say, you know what matters most here is not whether I'm right or you're right. What matters most is the Lord. How do you handle the life what's filled with messiness, you keep coming back. It's in the Lord. It's in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Find strength in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. So that's the first thing he tells them. When things go sideways, when you're getting wobbly, when you're losing your joy, the first thing is find agreement in the Lord. But he's not done there. The second thing that he says shows up in verse 3. Verse 3, the second thing he tells them is this. Get help when you get stuck Like if things have kind of gone sideways, yes, find agreement in the Lord. But what happens if you're still having a hard time with that? Well, then Paul says, get help when you get stuck. If things relationally are stuck, Paul says, get help. Look at verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul writes to someone, it's translated here, loyal yoke fellow. Some translations actually see that Greek phrase as a name. They must have known who he's talking about, but Paul is saying to someone else, not to you, Odia, not to Syntyche, he's saying to someone else in the church, hey, listen, help out these two dear ladies. I'm asking you to help them out. And by the way, the word for help there, translated help, it's a very strong word. Sometimes it means to seize or to apprehend. It's almost like he's calling for an intervention. He said, I want you to help them, kind of whether or not they want help or not. I want you, loyal yoke fellow, I want you to step in. These two dear women, they are my fellow workers. I love them. I long for them. But right now they need some help. They are stuck. The thing that that tells me is that sometimes when our relationships get stuck, that could be a marriage relationship, that could be a friendship relationship, that could be a ministry colleague relationship. Sometimes we need a loyal yoke fellow to help us get unstuck. Like we're trying to agree in the Lord, but we're still stuck. Paul said in this case, listen, listen, God has put resources in the church. There are people that can help you get unstuck, Euodia. There are people that can help you get unstuck, Syndicate. What's interesting, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, do you remember how the, those folks, they, they were getting offside with each other, and some of them were actually suing one another. And Paul writes to them, 1 Corinthians 6, and he says, listen, listen, bad idea, bad idea. Listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll read verses 4, 5, and 6. 
Paul writes this, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother goes to law against the other, and this in front of unbelievers? Paul's saying you got this relational friction going on in your, in your relationship between you and your church. Paul says, listen, listen, there are wise believers that God has put in the church that can help us. But so often we don't avail ourselves of that help. We don't ask for help. We just suffer and simmer in our own little stew, right? We just kind of stay caught down and Paul say, no, 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 get help when you get stuck. One time Linda and I were speaking to a group of missionaries like these were committed people. These people give, gave their life to serve Christ. And I, I went through this passage with them because I knew that the number one reason I've heard that missionaries leave the field is because of friction with other missionaries. I mean, that's just, we're humans. We, so I went through this passage and at the end of the week, one dear lady, a seasoned saint who loved the Lord came up to me and said, I wanna thank you for bringing that piece of God's word to me. God used that in my life. I've had a colleague relationship that's been stuck for many, many years. And I didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do. But when it said, get help when you get stuck. So I went to, I went to a, a, another missionary, someone I really respected. And I heard the story later of what this other missionary did. Get this. The missionary who knew there had been friction between these two dear saints, these two dear believers, they said, would you help us? They all met together in a room, and the person that they'd asked to come in and kind of help them, you know what she did? She got down on her knees and washed both their feet. Like, that's what she did. She didn't, she didn't give a, a big sermon. She just knelt down and washed their feet. And the lady who was telling me this story just said, she smiled and she said, after all these years, it's better. It's like, it's like there's been... A breakthrough. Listen, you may be someone who loves the Lord very deeply. You may be Uodi or Syntyche. I'm not doubting your, your passion for Christ. I'm just saying that even good people get stuck. And Paul is saying, yes, find agreement in the Lord. And sometimes you need to find help to get to that agreement. So what do you do when life goes sideways? Paul says, find agreement in the Lord. Verse three, get help when you get stuck. And now we come to verse four. And the third thing that he tells them and God tells us is this, find joy in the Lord. Find joy in the Lord. That's where he goes next. Right after verse three, where he's talking about helping these two women, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. I said for many years, I read this verse as if Paul started a new thought. He finished off with Euodia and Syntyche, and then he's going, now what else do I want to say? Oh, yes, I want to tell them to rejoice in the Lord. So let's start a new paragraph, and let's talk about rejoicing in the Lord. And that, that verse certainly does stand alone. In any situation, that verse is applicable. But hear it on the heels of what he just said. Because what happens to believers, what happens to a church when there's significant friction in the church? What happens to the joy in that church? Like it dissipates, right? It goes down in a hurry because people know what's going on and suddenly tension is there and we come in and we don't sense that same warm spirit anymore. 
And Paul doesn't want this church to be derailed by what's going on with a couple of his friends. And so after calling them to get help when they get stuck, he writes to everyone and says, rejoice in the Lord always, like even now, even before this thing is fixed, yes. And again, I say, rejoice. And again, I say, Paul, Paul, how does anyone rejoice when their heart is breaking? Well, it's because those same three little words, rejoice, what? In the Lord. If you just said rejoice, be happy, that seems rather trivial. Paul doesn't do that. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's in the Lord that we find our source of joy, even, even when our hearts are still wounded or breaking Remember, I quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, we must learn to feel more than one thing at a time. It's possible to have a broken heart and still to find joy in the Lord. Ken Sandy wrote an excellent little book. It's a great resource if you're kind of in a situation where you need some help when you're stuck. It's called The Peacemaker. That's the name of the book, The Peacemaker. Sandy said, even in the midst when we're trying to make peace and we're kind of not there yet, there are some things we can find joy in the Lord. And he gives three. He says, you can always rejoice in the Lord for your salvation. Isn't it wonderful that God saves us? And especially when you know that maybe you've been party to causing some friction, isn't it amazing that God's grace reached down to you, saved you? You can rejoice in that. And by the way, God's grace reached down and saved that Christian friend of yours with whom you're at odds. You can rejoice in that. He says, rejoice in the Lord for his salvation. Secondly, rejoice in the Lord for his provision. He gives resources, his word. Aren't you glad for the word of God? Aren't you glad for the spirit of God? You can rejoice in that. And third, he says, you can rejoice in the Lord for his sovereignty. His sovereignty rules over all. God is sovereign even over this situation. He wants you to be able to say, Lord, I I hate being where I'm at right now. I don't like this, but I rejoice in you that you are not caught off guard. You are not somehow, uh, somehow hamstrung by this. You know you are sovereign, and I'm finding my joy in you volitionally, even before I can do it emotionally. Find joy in the Lord. And then Paul goes on in verse 5, which I think is connected because in the midst of this, when there are things going on that are difficult and messy and, and there are rifts relationally, we can tend to be people who get on edge, who get intense and who become tense. We, when disagreements come, we can start to be disagreeable. We can start to become um, angry. We can start to speak in ways that are attacking. So look where Paul goes next, verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So here's the fourth thing that he says. Be known for being gentle. Be known for being gentle. As you are rejoicing in the Lord, even before everything's fixed, I want you, he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord, but also make sure people know you as someone who's gentle. Be known for being gentle. Disagreements often bring out the worst in us. We often can kind of get our surly side up our cynical side up, our snide words can come out. And Paul says, listen, in the midst of all of this, I want you to be known for being gentle. Verse five, see it? Let your gentleness be evident, be known to all. The word translated gentleness is used in James 3.17. And there it's translated in the NIV, it's translated considerate. 
It's kind of a hard word to bring into English. We don't have an exact equivalent, but gentleness, or think of, I think the word considerate helps me. In other words, what Paul is saying this, in the midst of the mess of ministry, you be known as someone who's considerate. Treat people with consideration. When you speak to or when you speak about somebody with whom you are having some tension, be considerate. Speak about them in the way you would want to be spoken about. I love the story of General Robert E. Lee. You know him from the Civil War days, Southern leader. He was a Christian man and a gentleman. One day, one of his officers came up to him and said, General Lee, do you know what General so-and-so is saying about you? And General Lee said, no. And he said, he says, and then he lists all these terrible things. He's saying all these terrible things about you. What do you think of that general? And General Lee is reported to have said, I think he's a fine general, and I'm glad to have him on our, on our side. And the guy said, well, didn't you hear all the terrible things that he's saying about you? And General Lee said, you didn't ask me what he thought about me. You asked me what I thought about him. In other words, he was being known for being gentle, being considerate. So Paul says, life's getting messy. There's some things that aren't exactly where you want. Well, then what do you do? Well, you say, I'm going to seek to try to find agreement in the Lord. I'm going to get help when I get stuck. And in the midst of it, I'm still going to buy, as God helps me, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. And as he helps me, I'm going to be known for being gentle, but I'm still not done. Because the next thing that Paul goes on to, I think, again, it's, it's, this is probably the most famous verse in all of Philippians. It's got to be near the top. There's so many greatest hits in Philippians that I keep saying, this one's like the greatest. Well, you could argue, no, 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 it's the other one. This would be one of the top one. Look where Paul goes next. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think there, Paul's giving him a fifth thing, and he's saying this, let anxiety trigger prayer. Let anxiety trigger prayer. Now, again, this verse stands alone, doesn't it? This is one of those verses you can write on a, on a sticky note, stick on your fridge, <clears throat> on your bathroom mirror. You can put it as your screensaver, and at any time, it's helpful. Are you feeling anxious about anything, about your health, about your future, about your finances? about your grandkids, it, it applies. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, <clears throat> let your requests be made known to God. It applies. But now hear that verse in the context of what's going on in the church in Philippi. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think, I think the flow could be this way. There's tension in the church. Yodi and Sinti not going so well. Paul says, get help. And then he tells the believers, listen, I know it's not perfect, but find your joy in the Lord and you be known for being gentle. And then he says, let anxiety trigger prayer. Because when things aren't going well, when there is some kind of upset, what happens inside of us? We start feeling anxious and upset and we start wondering how this thing's gonna play out and we worry. And Paul says, at those moments, even when things are not as tidy as you wish, I want you to let that anxiety that you feel trigger your prayers. Bring it before God. <clears throat> are you worried how this is going to play out in your church, in your family, in your marriage? Let that trigger prayer. Come before the Lord and say, Lord, please, you know what's going on. I need you now. I'm feeling anxious about this. 
And then he says, and don't you know, you love this part too in verse 6. He says, I want you to bring your prayers and petition, but do it with thanksgiving. What does thanksgiving do for us in the middle of hard times, unsettled times? What, is it, what does it do for your soul when you stop and say, I'm going to find reasons to thank the Lord? Kind of changes things. It's like rejoicing in the Lord, practically speaking. It's finding reasons to say thank you to God. And then Paul says, as you do this, verse 7, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Suddenly, this anxiety that you're feeling, God says, I'm going I'm to infuse my peace. I'm going to help you. So let anxiety trigger prayer. So you say, well, I'm doing that, but I tell you what, I am still wrestling with my thoughts. I do that for a minute, and as soon as, I, as soon as I stop praying, guess what? My mind starts going back and replaying the tension, replaying the issue, and I have conversations in my head of what I should have said or what I'm going to say, and I think again about what that person did to me, and suddenly I'm in this cycle again. It's going on and on and on, and that leads us to the sixth thing that Paul says. Verse 8, I'd put it this way. Focus your mind on the right things. Focus your minds on the right things. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if, there, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. See, especially in times of conflict, our minds go to things that are not true and right and noble and lovely we rehearse all the other kinds of stuff. And we speculate about other people's motives. What did they mean by this? And we, we, we construct whole kind of scenarios in our heads that may or may not be true. But we think about and our minds get flooded. And Paul, I think, tells the believers something that's true anytime, but especially when there's messiness. He says, I want you to focus your mind on the right things. What are the right things? Verse 8, look at them. Whatever is true, not speculative. Whatever is noble, not things that are shady and hurtful. Whatever is right, instead of thinking all the wrongs, think about what is the right thing. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent, praiseworthy, think on these things. Paul's telling them, and by the power of the Spirit of God, he says, I want you to have self-control in your thinking. And I want you to let your mind run wild. I want you to focus it in on those things that are true and right and noble. You say, okay, Lord, if you'll help me, I want to do that. I want to reign in my thoughts. I want my thoughts to be guided by your word and your truth. By one of the best ways to think about things that are noble, true, right, is to open the scripture, right? Read the Bible. Read more of it. Say, Lord, let my mind be saturated with this. And then finally, we come to the last thing, verse 9. Paul ends up. Here's a seventh thing. What do you do when life is messy? I think Paul's seventh thing would be this. Pattern yourself after a godly person. Pattern yourself after a godly person. Verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul starts this whole section talking about disruption where peace is broken. And he ends by saying, hey, listen, whatever you've seen or learned, received from me, practice it, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you want peace in your 
community and your relationships. Practice these things. See, the reality is many of us did not grow up with good examples of how to handle conflicted situations. Many of us just didn't see that growing up. And I'm not banging on anyone's family background, but I'm just saying we didn't see it. Maybe our family of origin, we just didn't talk about anything. You know, you, you smoldered silently. Maybe some of our family backgrounds, we were volatile. Whenever something was, you know, kind of off, everybody knew about it. The neighbors knew about it. You know, we were one of those families that was yelling things out, but we have not necessarily known how to do this thing right. And so Paul says to these believers who come from all kinds of pagan backgrounds, some from Jewish backgrounds, he says, listen, listen, what you've heard, seen, learned from me, practice these things. Let me be part of reparenting you in the Lord. Let me give you an example to follow. Watch how I have done things. And I think one of the gifts that God gives to believers in the church is the privilege of being around other mature, godly people that we can say, well, I didn't know how to do this, but I can watch that person. I can learn from her. I can learn from him. Who are the godly people in your world right now that you could say, well, when this is hard for me, here's somebody who's really a good example for me. I mentioned yesterday my dad, and in this area of peacemaking, my dad, I said he was like the best shepherding pastor I've ever known. I had a time where I saw this, and it was, it was an amazing time for me. My dad was pastoring a church out in California, and our church got a new organ. This is like 1970-something. And we got a new organ. And this was like big news for the church. And uh, it was a Rogers digital organ. Not, we used to kind of have this little home organ, and now we got like a church organ. And uh, I was on the organ committee. You know, they, they put some young guy on there thinking, let's get some of the young people in here. So I got to hear about all the digital things, and I was so psyched we were going to get this brand new organ. Just as we were getting, we ordered it, we got it in. And as the news broke, the organist came and resigned. She quit. <laughs> it's like, wait a second, we're just getting you a new organ, and you quit on us. So I was an intern at the church at that point, and my dad said, why don't you come with me? Let's go pay Doris a visit. Doris was a dear woman in our church. She'd been the organist for all these years, and now she's quit. And she wasn't happy. And so... Uh, so dad and I went, and I was kind of quaking in my boots. I just thought, here I am. This is probably not going to go well. I don't like conflict at all, and now we're going to step into it, and I don't know what's going to happen. So dad gets in there, and he talks to her, and by the end of the night, she's back on the organ. See, what happened was he began to ask her questions, and it came out why she quit. She quit because of this, she had in her head this thought, they're getting a new organ, they're expecting a lot better organ music, I can't play any better than I am, I'm gonna be a disappointment to everyone, I'm gonna be embarrassed, so I'm quitting before the thing comes. I didn't know that, but as he listened to her, that's what came out, and then he began to assure her that she was loved and that nobody was expecting her to some be some new virtuoso. We just wanted her to pray, play music so we could sing our praises to the Lord. And he affirmed who she had, how she had served. He affirmed her value. And she began to warm up and breathe easier. In fact, I, I wrote down five things that my dad did in that situation. I just sat there watching this. He listened without attacking. He affirmed genuinely her, who she was. He clarified and corrected her misunderstandings. He worked towards a workable solution. 
and he prayed with her. At the, by the end of the night, he's praying for Doris. She's smiling. It's hugs and handshakes. And by the next Sunday, when the organ came, she was playing. So that night, we walk out of the door. And I was still just kind of going, I can't believe that all just happened. So I said to my dad, I said, Dad, does this get easier the longer you do this? And he said to me, I don't know if it gets easier, but you get better at it. And I thought about that. I've thought about that all my life. This is still not easy stuff, is it, to try to work through relational differences. But with God's help, we can get better at it. We can learn to say, when I find myself at odds, I'm going to try to find agreement in the Lord. I'm going to get help when I get stuck. I'm still going to ask God to help me rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to try to, with his, with his strength, I want my gentleness to be known to everyone. And when I'm anxious, I'm going to let anxiety trigger prayer. And as God helps me, I'm going to focus my mind on the right things rather than the wrong things. And I'm also going to look for godly people that I can say, there's an example I can follow. And if that happens, guess what? The church grows up, we grow up, God is honored, and there's a new level of joy, not an untested joy, not a joy that just stays with us because life has always been good, but a joy that is born out of learning to see God work in some of the most difficult places of our lives. See, we're building a theology of joy. And the kind of joy God wants to bring us to is a joy that has been through the fire and still rejoices in the Lord. As we close today, can I just invite you to pray silently? Maybe you just need to talk about one of these seven things that the Lord, that I've kind of highlighted that the Lord's word says. Is there one of the seven that God's spirit would say to you, this is the one I want you to respond to? Is it find agreement in the Lord? Is it getting help when you get stuck? Is it rejoicing in the Lord right now? Is it being known for being gentle? Is it letting anxiety trigger your prayers? Is it focusing your mind on the right things? Or is it following the example of a godly person? What is it? You talk to the Lord privately and then I'll close this. Heavenly Father, I pray that each of us would be open before you, honest before you, humble before you, and strengthened by you, that we might learn more of what it means in the messiness of life and ministry to find our joy in you. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless.